So, good morning. Uh, welcome if you are a visitor. Uh, you have joined us, uh, actually, or if you're not a visitor, if you're here regularly, you'll know we are nearing the end of our We Believe uh, series, where we are looking at uh, something called the Nicene Creed. It's a statement of uh, faith uh, that was written about 1,700 years ago. Uh, we have these cards printed, and if you've got one, that's great. If you haven't got one and you want one, there are some still out there in the notice sheet boxes at the back. Uh, but a statement of uh, faith that was written uh, 1,700 years ago to really define uh, what it means uh, to be a Christian, uh, what are the, the boundaries of the, the Christian faith within which we can be Christians and love God, and, and boundaries beyond which we don't want to go or we fall into uh, tr uh, untruth. So as I said, we're a good way through this. Uh, we have one more, uh, I believe, to finish this off next week. Uh, but this week we are looking at this statement here that says, we believe in one holy, Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And uh, I think when I saw uh, this on, on the preaching rotor, when Steve gave me this one, I thought, thanks, you've given me a, an interesting one here. Because uh, over the course of this series, we've been looking at uh, the nature of God. We've been looking at the nature of Jesus. We've been looking at the, the nature and the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we actually come now in, in the progression through this to look at what it means uh, to be church. What does it actually mean to be a church? Is it simply these four walls? Well, this actually isn't a church. This is an old school, uh, school hall. So is it a school? Is it a church? Church is obviously more than the bricks and the mortar. You know, we are church, the people uh, that gather together, us. We make it church. But more, more so than that, what does it mean uh, to be church? And if we were to look at this passage, we have, uh, uh, courtesy of the early church fathers, four words that define what a church is or what a church should be. It should be one. It talks there about our unity. It should be holy. It should be Catholic. And it should be apostolic. Now, I'm going to tackle three of those. It's a bit like um, everybody's doing exams or having just done exams, isn't it? You get those uh, questions, don't you? Pick three out of the four to answer. Uh, you know, when we do sermons here, when we preach the word of God, it's actually good that it's not like that. It's not that you open up a passage and God says, yeah, pick the three that you can answer, uh, but don't worry about the one that you can't answer. That's the way that school exams often go, isn't it? You think, yeah, I'll revise those three. Don't know that one, but that's okay. But no, we're going to do four out of four, uh, but I'm going to do three, and then I'm going to ask some folks to join me on the sofa here uh, to tackle uh, the fourth one. So four things that the church is. First thing that it says there is the church is one church. Talks there about the church being united. Uh, and guess what, guys? I'm not going to actually say very much about this because this is the one that I'm going to pick up here and I'm going to plonk down over there on the sofa and we're going to pick that up in about 15 minutes or so because I'm going to ask some other folks what it means for us to be united in the terms of not just here as a church, but the church universal throughout the world, uh, the church universal throughout time, going back over centuries. Can we call ourselves one church? It's a prayer that Jesus prayed for his disciples, and indeed for us. Keep them in your name. 
which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That is an incredibly uh, challenging statement, isn't it? If you think about the oneness of the Father and the Son, how can you be more united? How, how can you be more one than the Father and the Son? And Jesus says, well, that's what I want for my church. <laughs> that's a bit of a challenge. So I, I'm glad in a way I don't have to do that one. There's some guys on the sofa that uh, I think I'll chip in as well, but they're going to help me answer that question. So let us look at uh, the, the other three. Talks of us being a holy church. One holy church. Now that doesn't mean to say that we are perfect, that we have it all together. When we think of the word holy, uh, certainly when I think of the word holy, my, my first reaction often is, is kind of monks and nuns and, and people that are kind of have got it all together and are very pious and are very righteous and don't have any problems and have all the answers uh, and they drift through life on a kind of a cloud uh, and no thunder or lightning kind of strikes them or if it does it just bounces off. This kind of wonderful kind of uh, uh, bubble of isolation to live in. Oh, I'm, I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm, I'm, I'm one step away from God already. Uh, and that's not what the word holy means. Uh, you might be very pleased to know that when God calls you to be holy. Uh, well, actually, we're, we're going to get to that place eventually, but right here, right now, uh, we are not perfect. We do not have it all together. We have issues and problems and circumstances and situations and things that we are working through. And our testimony to a world out there is, hey, we've got problems in here. We're like you. It's just that we've got a Father who helps us to navigate through those. So if holy doesn't mean to say I've got it all together and I'm perfect and I don't have any problems, uh, what does it mean? Well, the, the word holy really means that we're set apart. We're dedicated to someone or to something for a purpose. And so when we say we're a holy church, it actually means We've got a purpose. We've got a destiny. We are, uh, to use a phrase, I think, from either some Bible week or some convention, we are together on a mission. I think New Ground have, have already opted for that one. But, but that sums up, but, but for a very good reason, because that sums up what we are. We are together on a mission. We're called to be reaching out to a world that doesn't know Jesus. We're meant to be reaching out to a world and, and carrying on his work. Uh, as Jesus says, the Great Commission, that famous passage in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. That's our mission, that's our purpose, that's our goal. That's what we as a church should be doing. And whether that's the person uh, who lives next to us, whether that's the person that sits next to us at work or at school, whether that's that person in our family that doesn't yet know Jesus, we are on a mission to take Jesus to them, to reach out to them. In our, in our vision statement as a church, it says we're a diverse church equipped to impact the local community and beyond. And so we must never lose sight of the church is so much more than these four walls. It's a mission, it's a purpose, it's a journey that we're on. That's what it means when 1,700 years ago the guys said, hey, you're one holy church. They wouldn't have envisaged this building. They wouldn't have envisaged Crawley. 
that they wouldn't have understood electricity and guitars and projectors. But that's not the church. You know, the church is us together on a mission. It says uh, next, I don't know if we're on one or two because I'm jumping one, but next, if we're at one holy church, we're one Catholic church. Now there's an interesting word, isn't it? Uh, a word that probably means something today than it did uh, 1,700 years ago. Because if you, if you walk through Crawley, you will see uh, churches with boards out front that says, such and such, Catholic church. Well, we call ourselves Crawley Community Church. We don't, on our notice board, have Crawley Catholic Church. Does that mean we've missed something? Does that mean we've got something wrong? Does that mean we're not a Catholic church in the sense that these guys are calling us to be a Catholic church? Well, no, because the word has actually changed over the centuries. You see, the word Catholic, in the sense that it was written back here in 300 or so AD, comes from the Greek word Catholicos. That's where you get Catholic, Catholicos. And it actually means universal. It means one. It says united, and it meant they're united in the truths that you believe. And so when the early church fathers had written this document and said, this is what we believe, what they were saying is there's a unity, there's a, there's a, a universality, if that's the word, of belief. This is, a, this is a, a border that we can put round, and the people that believe this are united in their belief. They are Catholicos. They are Catholic. Do you actually know the opposite of the word Catholic? You might think that the opposite of the word Catholic is Protestant, yeah? But that's our history speaking. Because back in the 1500s, in last year, we looked at the whole Reformation because it was the 500th anniversary of the Reformation last year. That's where you had a church... You had, if you like, one church that was challenged by the teacher. Uh, the teachings were challenged by people like Martin Luther and uh, John Calvin. And because they were challenging, because they were protesting against some of the things that the church held as truth, then they were known as Protestant. And who, those that they were protesting against were called Catholic. And that's where you now have Catholic churches and Protestant churches, but the, but the strict opposite of the word Catholic is not Protestant. The strict opposite of the word Catholic is, sharp intake of breath, heretic. I think, Richard, you called us heretics, or you mentioned the word heretic last week. I'm sure you did, because it was simple. I thought, I'm not going to say I'm not going to say this. And it was only the fact that Richard actually mentioned the H word last week that I thought, I can get away with it. If you're a visitor this morning, if you're somebody that, that, that doesn't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, if you want to honestly say, look, these truths here, I actually don't believe them yet, then, then please... I don't like to call you a heretic, but the dictionary is that's the definition. Now, it's, it's a horrible word because it, it talks of uh, uh, burnings on the stake and the Spanish Inquisition and all the stuff that you know, we want to leave behind and consign to history because that's not how we do it now. But do you see what I say? That the word Catholic has this universal truth, this universal boundary of, of what we believe. And it also says as Catholic, if we're united, if we're one, it says that 
we share and we demonstrate the fullness, the oneness of Jesus Christ to the world. There's a universal representation that we give that, that through being church, we model Jesus. Nothing's missed, nothing's excluded, nothing's set aside. We want to we have this universal and full representation of who Jesus is. And then uh, the last one that we have in this four, we're called holy, uh, we're called Catholic, we're called apostolic. Again, there's an interesting word uh, that over time has, has changed. But what this is really speaking into is the fact that as a church and as churches down through the centuries, we believe in the truth of Scripture. So much of this is written by the apostles, by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Peter, Paul, those, uh, that first generation church that walked with Jesus, that experienced him. They wrote uh, the books that, that by the guidance of the Holy Spirit are gathered together into Scripture. Uh, and in their letters and in their Gospels that they affirmed uh, and mentioned so much of the Old Testament as well. So we have this complete book we have this canon of scripture, to use that phrase. And, uh, and what we're saying there by saying, but one of the things that we're saying by saying we are an apostolic church is we believe in the authority of those writings. The words that the apostles have written, the, the description, the theology, the way that they describe the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that's the truth. In fact, this is, this is not scripture. This, this Nicene Creed, you know, we, we don't uh, hold this in the same way and the weight as we hold Scripture. But this comes out of this. Every passage in this Nicene Creed you will find in here from the apostles, written down as, as truth, as accurate, as, as a definition of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit and the church. And so we say we are an apostolic church because we hold to Scripture. And day by day, we want to be modelled on that. Week by week, we want to hear the Word of God. It says there that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God and the woman of God may be equipped for every good work. And so week by week, here, we preach from this book. We preach from Scripture. We're, in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be picking up Galatians. I don't know if Galatians seems a long, distant few weeks ago. We've been working through the book of Galatians. Uh, we parked that to, to do a few other things, but we're coming back to Galatians because we don't leave bits undone. There's a fullness here. There's a completeness to the Word of God. And when we talk about being an apostolic church as well, we govern ourselves in a particular way. Democracy is a wonderful thing. But guys, hey, the church isn't a democracy. If you're a church member here, if you come to our prayer and family meetings when we're discussing what we do as a church, you'll be waiting a long time for one person, one vote. That's a wonderful democratic principle, but it doesn't happen in the church. We're, we're governed by elders, godly, godly men who lead us, and will share and will tell us, and will hear from us when we hear from God with things that, that are important. But ultimately, our leadership, our direction comes from at the eldership, men who are appointed to lead us, and yes, all of that will be shared. 
And then there are men over those. You, you, you would have heard, uh, if you've been here in weeks gone by, Jim Partridge from Mid-Sussex, who, who looks after a number of churches in the local area. Dave Holden, many of you will know, as the guy that leads our, our immediate movement of churches in new ground. And so that's the kind of leadership chain that we have. It's a model that we see in Scripture. And so when we say we are an apostolic church, that's one of the things that we hold on to as well. We're going to move on and look in a moment about this one that I dodged, what it means to be one. Uh, But that's what it means to be, very briefly, to be holy, to be Catholic, and to be apostolic. But uh, just before I invite some people up, I do want to just touch on the question that I want to ask in these next 15 minutes or so. What does it mean to be one church? What does it mean to be united? Because, to be perfectly honest, if you're a visitor here, if, if, if the Christian faith is something that's new to you, or even, frankly, if you're an experienced Christian, if you've been doing this for years, as you wander around the town, as you wander around Crawley, There are a lot of churches. We're very blessed in this town with a lot of churches and they all seem to have different names and they all seem to do things slightly differently. They are different, we use the phrase, denominations. And the question is, the question that I really want to ask, the question that I felt I just couldn't dodge this morning was how do we deal with that when Jesus says, I want you to be one? I want you to be one. Uh, If we can have the next slide, I think there are two verses there that uh, I think are so important. Uh, I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one. We've used that verse already. And then, for while there is still jealousy and strife among you, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians, are you not of the flesh and behaving in a human way? For when you say, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Paul's calling the Corinthians to a higher level of doing church. And so I ask myself, hey, all these churches, is this helpful in terms of unity or not helpful? Particularly for people that are looking in on the outside and saying, you guys don't seem very united. If we can have the next slide, I love this diagram. Now, you may not be able to see all the details in this. Don't worry about it. I'm really not going to explain it in detail. But I found this in all places, The Economist magazine. And it is the history of how the church has broken apart down through the centuries. So I will explain this really briefly. Don't worry if you can't see all the detail. But right at the top, it says their early Christianity... And back in the 7th century, and guys, the 7th century was 400 years after this, okay? So this was 300 AD. So we really do have one church. One church meant something a little bit different to the guys that wrote this. Because in 300 AD, there probably was one church. But then we had something for the history scholars in the 7th century that was called the Great Schism. There was this discussion about the who's, is the, how much power does the Pope have? What is the Holy Spirit? And that caused a split into what we kind of broadly now can talk of as the Eastern and the Western Church. You have the Roman Catholic Church, if you want, Rome being the Western side. And then in the 1500s, as we looked at last year, you had the Reformation. 
Uh, you had the Protestants that protested against the Catholic Church. And so you had all different kinds of denominations, people with a slightly different perspective on God and on, on how they should be church. So you had uh, Lutheran churches, you had Reformed churches, you had Anabaptists in, in this country. We had Anglican churches. That's where that denomination started, back there with Henry VIII becoming the, the head of the church and again falling out with the Pope, falling out with the Roman Catholic Church and forming the Anglican Church. In Scotland, you had Presbyterian churches, all, all kind of wanting to do things just slightly differently. And then when you get on a few more uh, centuries, you get to something called the Great Awakening. As, as God reveals more and more of his truth to people in different ways, you have, you have Methodist churches uh, you have Seventh-day Adventists. You have the Salvation Army. If Steve were here, he'd be giving a cheer because Steve's background, again, comes from the Salvation Army. And then as you move on into this century or the, century, the, the, the 20th century, you have uh, Pentecostal churches. This is where we would trace our DNA back through to Pentecostal churches, to charismatic churches. Uh, this is where we are. Unfortunately, guys, this is the Economist magazine, not our church newsletter. So, so we've kind of got a dotted line here. We're, we're falling off the bottom of the chart with a dotted line uh, because we're the charismatic movement. Uh, that, that again, you'll have new ground and new frontiers and the history that, that you and I now know. Does that talk of unity? Does that talk of one church? And so you, you have this question when people out there say, well, why should I come to church? Because you guys just don't seem to get your act together. Why can't you just agree on what you want to agree on and just draw a line there? Why can't you have that and just be the church? Is that an interesting question to ask? Do you think that's an interesting question to ask? Yes, so I'm not going to answer it. So I am going to invite up uh, Richard, uh, Justin and Valentina. If you'd like to come up. Uh, this is the great thing about doing a Q&A. You see, you genuinely can look at the passage and think, what are the bits... I now, guys, do you think you can three of you get on the sofa? That's the first challenge. <coughs> I love this bit. What I'm going to do is I'm going to... Uh take that off and then we can use this, this microphone. Ah, that's brilliant. We fit for a start. Okay, so let's come, let me come and sit down over here as well. So, um, actually, first question. How's that? Okay. So, look, um, ladies first, Valentina. Uh, because Valentina, many of you know, Valentina has, has a ministry to uh, Russian-speaking churches, to Russian-speaking people. So I, I guess from my perspective, if we look at that diagram, that probably doesn't apply so much to, to Russia, to countries that you go eastward from Russia. You do kind of have, I think you have the church, but even though you have the church, you don't have that kind of fragmentation of denominations. Is that fair? Um, and if so, is that a good thing or a bad thing? What a good question. <laughs> well, um, looking at the Russian-speaking world, uh, I would say it is quite vast, and you will probably see uh, in our days 
quite a diversity of beliefs and denominations which uh, came after the post-Soviet uh, disbelief. Uh, but looking at Russia specifically, now, of course, you can't help but notice that uh, uh, Russian Orthodox uh, belief becomes dominant and, in fact, um, now is more of a state religion. And uh, that means that uh, it tends to eliminate um, the false teaching, but also uh, the variety of denominations uh, and uh, evangelical churches uh, which uh, we can have here. So it's, it's quite strict in what it is right now. Thanks, that's good. I, I noticed in the paper recently that, that Russia was um, uh, prosecuting quite severely Jehovah's Witnesses, which we would see as a very kind of, well, beyond the boundaries of the Nicene Creed. Uh, so in one sense, you see that as a good thing, but at the same time, as you say, you don't get this rise of what we would say as charismatic uh, churches. Um, Richard, I'm going to pick on you, if I may, because I know that when we've, when we've spoken before, you've, you've said you've got a kind of a background in a more kind of Pentecostal and even kind of Roman Catholic uh, uh, experience. So can you tell us something about your experience of different denominations in the past? Yes, yeah, so I've got a very confused um, church background. Um, I was brought up as a Roman Catholic, but dad's actually an Anglican. Um, I'm married to a Baptist. Um, got married in a Methodist church, um, trained by Anglicans. So, um, I, mean, I mean, to be fair, I'm, as a, I wasn't a very strict Roman Catholic. I was an altar boy for a few years, but I then went. In, I became a serious Christian when, when I joined a Pentecostal church. So that's kind of my my main background in terms of really thinking about um, Christ and following him. Um, Pentecostal Church, from my experience, it's, it's, in one sense, I think they're probably the most passionate denomination that I've ever connected with. I mean, they're all heart, which is great in some sense, but can be chaotic in other sense. Um, but they're also very strict, so from my experience, so I'm sure there's, you know, there'll be examples of Pentecostal Church that are not so strict, but I had a quite strict um, church up, upbringing. Um, and 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 in that sense, I, I kind of struggled with it. So yeah, I guess I guess from my in terms of the question about one church, in one sense, I I, I think diversity is a good thing. Um, as you said, you, you get these kind of nice things that comes with each denomination. So with the Pentecostal church, you get the passion, right? and and, all, and what's amazing about the Pentecostal church, they always punch above their weight. You know, they've got no money. Most of these churches are dead poor, but somehow they can do an awful lot with no money because of all their passion and heart. The downside is that they're quite strict, so you always get this kind of yin-yang, this sort of negative, positive um, effect. Um, I think the, the, the issue with... Well, where it becomes a problem with these different denominations is that they struggle to work together. And the reason they struggle to work together is because each denomination, my experience is that they, they, they have a, a level of arrogance about them. Um, in other words, it's all about being correct, and everyone thinks they're correct. There's, there's that, looking at that chart, I'm reminded of a, an internet meme that went around. It's, it's like a cartoon, and this guy's he's in a classroom, he's pointing to a chart with all these similar sort of boxes, and at the end, there's a box at the bottom, and he points to the box at the bottom and says, so all these nominations happen, and then finally, why at the end, God finally got it right with us. Um, and, and, and that's how a lot of churches are. You know, and um, 
And because of that, I think we, we struggle. We struggle to have, to have unity. And the only time we tend to find unity is when, it's when we find um, things we can both hate. You know, so you know, so we're good at finding things we can both hate. You know, you, you hate that, I hate that, we can hate that together. Rather than you love this, I love this, we can love this together. We struggle to find cohesion on things we agree with. That's good, isn't it? It's important to have a, a positive unity, is I think what you're saying, rather than a kind of negative unity. Um, Justin, your background, and uh, also I think you had a helpful picture, that I think it was from your dad at some point, that, that gives a, paints a, something about this, this, this unity um, message. Yeah, so, um, so I grew up in a Christian family, uh, many of you know my story, but um, it was a Methodist church that I belonged to till I was about 15, 16. And then all my friends were in the Baptist church, so friendship took me to the Baptist church, um, and that's where I really got introduced to the Holy Spirit. Um, and then when I left home, I was a student up north, and I experienced congregational churches um, and free churches. Um, so it was sort of a varied background, very much um, sort of steeped as in my background in, um, in Methodism. So like when sometimes you, you read, uh, read things or people know things in sort of like the ordered service, so I know them off by heart, so I don't have to read them type thing. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I think my take on um, denominations is you know, Jesus, as you said, it's, it's one church and, um, it, you know, it's one body. So what is, why, why are we trying to change things or see the, the problem with diversity in our body? It's one body. Why can't it be ears aren't noses, eyes aren't knees, etc.? So I, I don't see that being a problem. What Richard says is is very true. We we it's what seems to divide us or or is different between us that we focus on rather than what unites us. And I think that's our problem. And I remember once with my dad, as, as Kim was saying, we talk, talk, I was talking about this the other day, and it came to mind. Well, my dad, when he was fifty, I think it was fifty, one of those big presents, he gets to go up in a hot air balloon. And um, so he, he, he's discussing this with me afterwards, because I wasn't invited, obviously, because I wasn't 50. Um, but he, he said it was, it was like, great, it was a very calm day, and, um, and, and we, I was pondering on this afterwards, because down on the ground, in churches, and even with, at home, you, you are overwhelmed by your fence, or your, or your hedge, or your wall, where you live, and, and you see more of that where you live, rather than your neighbours. And he said that as I, as I went up in, in the quiet, as I got higher and higher, he said all of the, the surrounding heights where, which swamps our thinking just disappeared. And, and fences and walls and hedges just melted into the background. And all of a sudden, he saw the lie of the land and saw neighbors and saw everything around. As I think that's really how I think God sees it, doesn't it? Actually, that he, he doesn't, we don't see things from his perspective. We see what divides us rather than what unites us and um and another takeaway from my conversation with my dad was that when you're up high bizarrely there's nothing blocking sound going up so there's no trees or, or anything in the way so he said when you're up high you can hear car doors shutting people shouting or talking babies crying you can hear all that from up, up high and i just reckon if we actually get god's perspective from a denominational point of view and see things as he sees them, actually, we might hear each other a bit clearer because we're actually hearing things from a different height. That's really good. Thank you, Justin. Um, the one thing that I haven't touched on on this passage in the Nicene Creed was we talked about uh, one baptism. Uh, and I guess that can be something that 
divides us, for want of a better word. We would, we would as we did last week with Nina, we, we saw a baptism where we, and Annie, when we fully immersed these two lovely ladies, and, and that's kind of how we would do baptism. I guess when we look at other churches, you, you see things like infant baptism and sprinkling uh, water on the forehead rather than full immersion. So I guess the question is for, for me, to, to anybody that wants to grab the microphone and dares to answer this one, is, is how far do we push that? How far do we say this is right or this is wrong or is that a valid thing to do? Um, and at what point do we just accept this? Hey, that's just God's wonderful diversity. Okay, so it's, it's a question that comes up. We've just had the Connect course and it's a question that comes up in the Connect course because part of joining this church as a local church, part of that is we want you to be really certain about being a disciple of the Lord. And part of the, the Bible says that first you believe and then you're baptized. So we want people to be disciples, so we want them to be baptized. But the question comes up is, so have you been baptized already? Um, and I was baptized um, before I came here. Um, and many people have been baptized, not in full immersion, but actually just as a sprinkle. Um, and the question comes up is, okay, so the Bible says you believe and then you're baptized. So the question really is, was that, were you a believer when you were baptized? Was the Lord your Lord? Whether there was a little or a lot of water. And, and if people say, I was baptized a little bit and, and I was a believer, it was, and I say, is it meaningful? Was it a meaningful time to you? And they say, yes. Then for me, I mean, for me, that's fine because they were a believer and they were baptized and it's one baptism. However, many times people say, well, I really want to get baptized and, and do everything I can do to follow the Lord. So for me, this was where I fell into the camp. When I wanted to join the church, it was basically, okay, we got to the conversation, have you been baptized? And I said, well, it wasn't too meaningful. I just went through the motions as a young lad. Um, but I was a believer, but it wasn't meaningful. So, I, so I, I just grabbed the opportunity with two hands and said, I want to be, if there's anything I can do to get closer to the Lord Jesus, I'm going to do it. So when I came into membership, I was actually baptized, you might say for the second time, um, but I was baptized by Phil Immersion, but it's because it was more meaningful for me at that point in time. You don't get baptized every time you change churches, but it's just question is, were you a believer and, and was it meaningful to you when you were baptized? Yes, yeah, I actually um, had to do a, an essay on baptism about, about three years ago. And it was, in, it was a really interesting essay, actually. At first, I thought it was a bit of an odd one because they basically gave an essay to, to Christians who have all been baptized within their own traditions, who all have their own take on it. So you kind of thought, well, surely everyone would just say, well, I'm used to child baptism, I vote for child baptism, or vice versa. But what was, I found quite interesting, it kind of forced everyone to see both sides of the argument, which, to be honest, for the first time, I never really looked into. And so, yes, to be honest, I'm a champion of adult baptism. I see the value in that. Um, I do actually understand, actually, the other argument for the first time. Um, it, for example, I mean, for the first 1,700 years, most Christians, to be honest, probably were baptized as children, um, including the likes of Martin Luther and... So in some sense, even though I'm a champion of adult baptism, I wouldn't deny a child baptism as being a real baptism. I do think what Justin said is very helpful. Um, actually, you know, when was it meaningful? Interesting thing, Anglican Church, I do know they're having lots of conversations where, where 
some of them who were christened as a child saying, I want to be baptized as an adult. And they're saying, well, you can't do that within the Anglican church. But what they've done, they've found a middle way. So they've, you're actually, what they're doing in some Anglican churches, they do almost like a recommittal type water ceremony where you effectively, you kind of go for the vows again and you kind of um, go into water again. Which is not technically a baptism, but it's an echoing of the original christening where you get to where you commit your vows and make it meaningful. Um, which I thought was interesting, that even Anglican Church should begin to think about this, about actually it being something meaningful and not just going through the motions. So I think it's a great, I think it's a great question. I, I guess, I think, I kind of agree with your answer. I think um, it, need, it needs to be meaningful. And, and so if, you, if, someone, if someone came to me and they were christened as a child and they generally filled out with real baptism, the question is, how does it become meaningful? Um, and does it, did it do what I did, which I did what you did, which is be double-dipped? I went to full immersion baptism um, as an adult. Or, or what do we do about that? I think it's a, it's a real important question to answer. Just comment that I'm also sort of like a double deeper experienced <laughs> person. Uh, yeah, indeed. And <laughs> well, um, I think for some people, like there was a lady in our church uh, who was uh, severely disabled at the time, so she couldn't have a baptism by full immersion, but there were um, means uh, taken, uh, the measures taken to help her through it. And as a double deeper, who was sort of like christened um, and believed at the time, uh, yet then making a step to being baptized by, by full immersion, I would say for me, the meaningfulness of it increased on another level because I, when I was younger, so I believed I didn't fully understand. For me also, I find it quite significant when we try to uh, follow scripture quite, quite strictly and precisely when it says that uh, Jesus came out of the water and indeed we are dying uh, when we're going under the water. We're dying for our old self and we are raising up to the new life. Was at the second baptism, uh, before that, I, I didn't have that knowledge. I didn't come to that fullness of uh, being uh, baptized by full immersion and in Holy Spirit as well. So for me, I would say the full deep was uh, much more powerful and more meaningful in that sense. So perhaps uh, just a question again to start to wind things up. Um, what can we do differently? Um, we've talked about wanting to be united. Steve's on holiday at the moment. I wanted to have Steve on the sofa because, uh, and Steve, if you're listening to this, you're going to have to answer this question when you come back from holiday. Um, but this, this, I wanted to ask, because Steve meets with local um, church leaders, uh, and I just wanted to ask Steve, and I'm asking him now anyway on here, um, do you guys talk about your differences uh, what, how does that discussion look like? But I'm sure Steve would say, hey, you, you know, we're, we're united, we're one. But is there stuff that we can do more as a church? I've got two elders here on, on the sofa uh, to, to be more at one with other churches rather than focusing on our differences. That's kind of an easy thing to say, but how do we do that? Um, probably take a lesson from one of the other pastors in the, in the, in the town and take, make every opportunity from everything. Um, so Richard uh, St. Andrews, he's uh, the minister there, and, uh, and he was on holiday. His car broke down. This was 
was it last year? Um, his car broke down, he couldn't go camping, and he didn't want to go back to his church because it was like going back to work. So he came to us in the morning. And, um, and, and we invited him through, we had a chat, and he said it was just great. And it just broke down some of the boundaries. So I think it's making, for guys who perhaps aren't available because we have you know, other jobs to, um, when, when they meet, but I know that Steve does meet regularly with them. Um, and they're sort of planning how, how can Crawley benefit from them being a team together. Um, so um, like St. John's is, is doing things um, themselves which they want to share with us and the, the other churches to actually benefit all the churches in town. Um, so there's a, there is a great... One of the marks that I found from Crawley, from being part of the congregation or in other towns and places, was that when I came here... Um, it was unheard of for me to hear that there was like a fraternity, uh, uh, the meeting of the, the, the leaders of the churches getting together. That was new to me. So Crawley was a bit new on that sense. So it is a very blessed town that the, the, the churches do meet together. And, um, and I think them getting together and praying actually uh, blesses the town in a way we don't actually appreciate. So. I'll just have the next slide up for a moment because I've just noticed we've had that on there. But I think... Uh... Here's a question I trust that we're answering. Um, Valentina, can I just ask you, um, again, working with the, the Russian world and Russian speakers, both online and even here in the church, have you, have you been asked, why do we have all these different denominations? And, and how have you answered that, perhaps, to people that are asking it from a slightly different area? Um, I'd say it's not the most commonly asked question, but... People do ask, why can't you just be one? It is confusing when they face denominations. And um, um, it really seems like, um, yeah, not, not the easiest one to, <laughs> uh, to, to answer. I think the illustration we gave, it's when you share the same values, perhaps, as, as a family, you can have the closer family, or you can have the most distant uh, relatives, but when you share the same values of belief, like as we discussed now in, uh, uh, in statement of faith, in creed, uh, then it makes you, makes you one family. And uh, it really seems like the church itself on the previous slide was um, like on the journey really, uh, when people were less literate, uh, they perhaps tend to follow tradition and memorize a scripture from songs or uh, from images on the world uh, on the walls. Uh, but then, as people were more and more educated, like with Martin Luther, studying scripture more, seeking God, following where He takes, the church seemingly evolves and. It changes, and then we get variety. And in fact, when uh, Jesus was teaching his disciples and then he sent his Holy Spirit, he simply said, go. Where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. So there is uh, amazing freedom in that. Uh, but of course, yeah, there are also responsibilities how we handle that freedom and uh, really following the truth uh, in the final book uh, of the Bible, in Revelations, uh, Jesus speaks to different churches differently. And I believe he, he changes churches. He, cha he changes us. He shapes us uh, into one, what he wants us to be, to become uh, one, to become united, 
to be that one united church uh, which he prayed for in John 17. I want them to become one. But yeah, we, we just speak about family, I think, and family values. If we share it, then it's true. Richard, any last closing thoughts from you? So, so in some ways, when I studied, it was a good opportunity. For me, it was an eye-opener. I got to uh, go side by side with people from different, different denominations and different groups. For me, the key thing was about, a lot of it for me was about getting to know the people. Because when you get to know the people, you realize actually what defines them is not necessarily um, what's on their church websites, you know. Um, what defines them is, the, is their ethics, is how they treat people, is their values. Um, and so for me, I can work with anyone once, I, once I've worked out where the, their true values and what they're really about and how they treat people. I have a lot more patience for people. You know, if someone has the same beliefs but they're, they're a total jerk, then the fact they have the same beliefs is irrelevant. You know, I'll probably struggle to work with them. So it's really about the people. And so actually, when it comes to working with different denominations, there's probably a lot of flexibility once you get to know, as you say, you got to speak with Richard Pooley, once you get to know the people we know it about, then you probably find we actually if and how we can work together. Thanks so much, guys. Would you like to show your appreciation for my esteemed panel here? Uh, let's just, uh, just close in prayer. Father, just thank you that you have uh, created us different. Uh, there's a wonderful diversity within your kingdom, and uh, uh, we just praise and thank you that we are not all identical. We're not carbon cutouts uh, of each other. Thank you that your word is just so vast and so enormous that there's just so much truth there that we can express in so many different ways. Uh, but Lord, our prayer would be a prayer for unity, uh, a prayer for unity here in this church, uh, a prayer for unity in this town, uh, among the Christian churches in this town, and indeed a prayer for unity uh, for your church throughout this, this whole world. Lord, we just pray, uh, just as you prayed uh, in the garden, Lord, that, that we would uh, be one. Amen.